What up, everybody? It's Cuff of the Vision Lab Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Farmers Insurance, the Robert Garcia Agency. If you're looking for the best insurance and customer service, make sure you pick up the phone and dial 972-645-1844. Whether it's home, life, or business insurance, Robert and his staff are the best at protecting you and your family. Once again, that's Farmers Insurance, the Robert Garcia Agency. Agency. The phone number, 972-645-1844. And the website is farmersagent.com forward slash R Garcia. And don't forget to mention the Vision Lab podcast. Hey, everybody. It's Marcos Ladek with Whiteboard Finance, and you're listening to the Vision Lab podcast with Cuff and Mo. Welcome back to the Vision Lab podcast in partnership with Nexum Creative. I'm your host, Ryan Cuffey, alongside my co-host, Mr. Ryan Mosley. The Vision Lab is a platform focused on growth and exploring the developmental path of people's visions and dreams and how those dreams come into reality. Today, we have an absolute amazing guest on the podcast, y'all. Uh, over 300,000 followers on YouTube. Mo, why don't you tell us a little bit more about our guest today? Tough. Today's guest is a native of Cleveland, Ohio. He is a graduate of the University of Akron. He is the face of the YouTube series, Whiteboard Finance, and he is the owner of Zlatic Media. Please welcome Marco Zlatic to the Vision Lab podcast. <laughs> yeah, thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Hey, thank, thank you, you, Marco. Sir. For real, man. Um, this is a big privilege, man. We are certainly honored to have you here uh, in the lab, hanging out with us. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of you and what you're doing uh, across the internet on YouTube, man. Um, so, you know, let's just jump right on into it, huh? Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, just like your colleague just introduced, man, born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio, just a regular guy, man. So I appreciate the kind words, but, you know, just to give your guys' audience some encouragement, you know, if I can do this, you know, pretty much anyone can, man. Just take some hard work. Uh, one thing, Cuff, before we jump into it, we want to thank all of our sponsors. Cuff mentioned uh, Nexum Creative. We also want to thank Robert Garcia and the Farmers Insurance Agency and Lucas, Texas. We want to thank uh, Edwina and the family over at Blow and Smoke Cigar Lounge in Duncanville, Texas. Uh, we'd like to also thank the good guys at Definition Cigars, uh, the family over at Dallas Leaf. We really appreciate all of you guys. We look forward to seeing everybody uh, once, uh, once COVID-19 has, has finished running its course. Uh, so, Marco, my first question. Um, you have a degree in finance. Uh, and then all of a sudden you find yourself working in the finance department at a car dealership. Uh, is that what you envisioned when you were getting your finance degree or how did, how did that all turn out? No, not at all. So it's funny that we're having this conversation while this, you know, quote unquote recession is starting to boil up a little bit here. So at the time of this recording, you know, people are filing for unemployment, you know, it was crazy, but this was kind of like how I graduated. So I graduated in December of 2010, about a year and a half after the financial crisis. And when you're, you know, 22 years old with a finance degree, you know, you're not finding a job in finance anywhere. So I actually sold cars for about a year, um, worked a little bit in sales, a little bit in uh, parts and accessories, a little bit in finance. Uh, but to answer your question, man, no, that is not where I envision myself going to school with, you know, for a four-year degree. Um, there's no disrespect to car salesmen or the car industry. It provides, you know, a lot of uh, living incomes for a lot of people. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, I didn't just spend, you know, 60, 70, 80 grand in student loans, you know, right. to go work at a car dealership. I could have done that, you know, with the high school diploma or even less, to be quite honest. So what was your ultimate vision? I mean, um, obviously, you started off, you know, in doing several different jobs, ended up at the car dealership during the recession. 
Um, did you have a vision coming out of, you know, Akron, um, what you wanted to do? Yeah, absolutely. So the whole reason why I started Whiteboard Finance is because I wanted to be a financial advisor. And I didn't want to be one of those, you know, sleazy financial advisors that tries to take advantage of people and just sell them stuff that they don't really need just to make a commission. I wanted to be a, you know, fiduciary fee only advisor, meaning that I have my client's best interest in hand and I'm getting paid a set fee, meaning that I'm putting them in the best possible product possible um, without, you know, getting kickbacks from my bigger company or parent company, if you will. Um, so when that happened, you know, I had no shot at doing this with, you know, people losing 30, 40% over the course of like a year and a half. Right. So, um, no one was hiring. I didn't even want to go like the back office route at a bank or something like that. Um, even if I wanted to, I couldn't have got those jobs anyway. So I ended up selling cars, but to answer your question, yeah, I wanted to be a financial advisor because I like teaching and I like uh, helping people. And I feel like if I know something and I know it well, I want to share that knowledge. Um, and that's ultimately how Whiteboard Finance was born. Absolutely. And I love that, man. And so you've got a digital company, a digital media company that's focused on uh, creating content to help others empower themselves through financial education and, and financial literacy. Um, ultimately, Marco, what was the catalyst in your life that kind of created that desire to, to help others? I mean, you kind of mentioned you wanted to always help from a fiduciary uh, perspective, but what was, was there something in your life that happened, someone that, uh, you know, it, encourage you to kind of go down this route? Yeah, I mean, as uh, I don't know if corny is the right word, but you know, I'm, I'm Christian, I believe in giving back. And I feel like, uh, you know, whether you're someone that needs to go to church every Sunday or something like that, or whether you just believe, you know, in the higher power in general, I believe in karma. And I feel like when you share knowledge, and you help others achieve what they want to achieve, you know, God, or the universe, the matrix, you know, the software program, or whatever we're living in, who knows, you know, because uh, no one knows. But at the end of the day, all that stuff's going to come back to you, you know, tenfold. And it's not even about getting it back. It's just about helping. And you will live a better life inevitably, I feel like. Absolutely. It's a servant's heart. Yes, yes. I'm curious, Marco, have you always loved numbers or is there a particular event that happened in your life that, that made you go down this whole road of finance? Like, uh, you know, not everybody just dreams of like, hey, I want this career in finance. Is it, <laughs> is it in you? Like, is it in the bloodline or did something happen? You're like, I'm working with numbers for the rest of my life. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I feel like people do what comes to them naturally. You know, so if uh, there's that one Einstein quote that says, like, if you judge a fish's intelligence on its ability to climb a tree, you know, everyone's going to think that fish is dumb. Um, but I think that uh, my father, he's uh, just a naturally smart dude. He's a mechanical engineer, you know, didn't go to college. He's an immigrant, but he's just a naturally smart guy. And I get like his math skills in my brain. But then you have my mom, who's kind of like, you know, an extrovert, you know, very outgoing, very social. And she's also good with numbers as well. So I just feel like it's kind of like in the bloodline, as you mentioned. So I've always just numbers came naturally to me as always. Um, but that's not to say that you can't pick it up, but I feel like at the end of the day, people are going to go the path of least resistance and just do kind of what they're naturally good at. Gotcha. So obviously, like you said, you know, we're in this current, you know, quarantine status with, with COVID-19, you know, running through the United States. Um, what is your best financial advice or tip that you could give to, to anybody listening, uh, you know, as we all endure this, this, this pandemic? Yeah, that's also a great question. I think that, so I actually created a video in August of 19, believe it or not, called the 2020 recession, you know, how to prepare for the stock market crash. And that video has about a million views on it. And obviously, I didn't know that 
a pandemic was going to happen, but I had a feeling that there's a lot of frothiness in the markets and this inevitably had to come down at some point. Um, so to answer your question, I recommended in that video to play defense first. So what I mean by that is to have, and I'm talking like for the regular Joe, I'm not talking what Bill Gates and Warren Buffett are doing. I'm talking about the regular eight to five, you know, middle-class person or families doing um, what I would recommend is to play defense first and have a three to six month emergency fund. I know that sounds corny, but you know, layoffs happen. If you look at the past three weeks, we've had about 15, 16 million Americans claim uh, unemployment just in the past three weeks alone. So wow. if they watch my video in August 19, uh, knock on wood, I hope a lot of them, you know, did build up that three to six month emergency fund. So if you get laid off today, you at least have three to six months of living expenses to be able to find another job. Um, so I play defense first. And then if you want to talk about offense, um, look at industries that have been affected by um, this coronavirus pandemic. So if you look at like cruise lines, uh, airlines, uh, hotels, resorts, anywhere where people, you know, thrive on like travel, um, uh, logistics, you know, things like that, leisure, um, all those industries are getting killed. So if you find a company for talking just stocks or publicly traded, you know, equities, uh, look at a company that has a solid, uh, solid books, solid numbers, solid ratios, and that's going to be able to survive, you know, these, you know, one, two, three, four, five months of quarantine. Um, you don't want to be too speculative and in investing in like a cruise line that knock on wood doesn't go bankrupt, but could, and then you lose everything. I'm talking about companies that are like, you know, like a Disney, for example, you know, Disney's getting crushed because their resorts but there's still a very strong underlying company with sure. their networks and streaming and stuff like that. And this is not financial advice. I'm 100% wrong 100% of the time, <laughs> uh, but I'm just giving you guys an idea. <laughs> sure, sure. So um, a lot of people got excited a couple of weeks ago when the government reduced the interest rates to 0%. However, you know, there's this misconception of the relationships to you know homes and mortgages and the federal interest rate, can you kind of help clarify you know what that actually means? Yeah, so uh, when people say that the Fed dropped rates to zero, uh, I made a couple of videos about this actually. A lot of um, the regular Joes, um, and I'm not saying that they're not sophisticated. People just don't understand finance, which is fine. Uh, I, I think it's actually designed, not meant to be understood by the regular, you know, everyday person on purpose. But with that being said, when I made that video about the Fed funds rate going to zero, which it is, people thought that they're going to go out and get you know, mortgages at 0%, car loans at 0%. That's right. not what that means. The Fed funds rate is simply the rate at which the Fed is lending out other financial institutions, other banks, uh, the rate at which they're borrowing money. Okay, So they're going to get it for cheap, maybe 0%, maybe 25 basis points, maybe a little bit more. And then they're going to give you a 30-year mortgage for like 3.5%, for example, or a car loan for 4.5%. And that's where banks make their money on the spread of which they got the money at and what they're lending it to you at, if that makes sense. Right. And we actually started to see the inverse because so many people started going into, you know, refining their homes. And so as a result, a lot of these, um, you know, small, smaller agent, uh, agencies or uh, houses couldn't afford or have all the... Um, the influx of, of business that was coming in. So you started to see the rates jack up instead. Yes. Yep. And just to finish my point, sorry to interrupt, Ryan. No, uh, no, you're the, good. the Fed funds rate actually doesn't really dictate mortgage rates. Mortgage rates have typically been tied to the 10-year treasury bond. And when those actually dip below 1% for the first time in history, about three or four weeks ago, 
that's when I was I actually got pre-approved for a 30 year mortgage at like 3.19%, which was crazy. It was like right. one of the lowest 30 years I've ever seen. Um, and we can go down a whole Pandora's box of like, you know, should you take out cheap debt for 30 years, you know, at a fixed rate, because sometimes it makes sense. Um, a lot of times I talk about, you know, not having debt. Um, and I was able to go full time on YouTube because I don't have debt. My wife and I have zero debt, knock on wood. Um, but you know, if you're getting a 30 year fixed rate at 3%, I mean, is it really that terrible? So there's, there's a lot of arguments to be made both mathematically and emotionally. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that. And obviously, I've been watching you for a while. I know that you're a, a Dave Ramsey fan, to say the least. Um, is there such thing as good debt? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So I'll say that I'm kind of like a hybrid between Dave Ramsey and like, um, how do I say this? I don't know if you guys know George Gam, and he may be someone you may want to interview. Uh, he's got a great YouTube channel talking about macro and microeconomics. Okay. Um, so I, I definitely am a fan of Dave Ramsey for the every, average everyday person. If you want to be middle class, build wealth, have a solid retirement, Dave Ramsey's awesome. And I agree with literally 90 to 95% of what he says. However, I don't, I don't agree with him on two things, credit cards and then also about uh, good debt. So to answer your question, is there such a good thing as good debt? I think that as long as you are putting good debt on a cash flowing asset, that is a, I don't want to say a hundred percent solid bet because no one has a crystal ball, but I'm saying if you're uh, very comfortable with your numbers and you've been very conservative in your underwriting, you know, I'm definitely a fan of good debt. If it's for assets, things that are bringing you in money. I'm not talking about debt on consumer items, you know, like spending it on a vacation or, you know, a car or something that's taking money, you know, a liability, something that's taking money out of your pocket every month. So let me ask this question because there's a huge debate um, for those that, you know, support or believe in what Grant Cardone talks about, uh, Robert Kiyosaki. And you know where I'm going with this, right? So a house, is a house an asset or a liability? Oh man, that's tough because (laughs) so from a straight numbers standpoint, uh, typically, uh, the, all the research that I've done, I've done a lot. Uh, there's, there's different types of real estate markets. So think of like San Francisco, booms, busts, booms, busts, booms, busts. Then you look at like a Dallas, which is somewhat linear, you know, goes up a little bit, goes down, goes up a little bit. And then you have kind of like a Cleveland, which is where I'm from, where it's just kind of like flat line, right? You know, no appreciation whatsoever. So if you're looking at it straight from a mathematical standpoint, uh, the number that tends to be the key number is right around $250,000. If you can get into a house for 250 grand, then mathematically and emotionally, it makes sense. Now, if you're someone like me who has a wife who wants, you know, a nice, you know, house for their family, which is fine. You know, I didn't, I grew up middle-class, you know, my parents are immigrants. I, I grew up in a house on a main road, like a 1500 square foot house, right? Regular house. Um, my wife grew up a little bit differently. She's not affluent or anything. Her parents are immigrants as well, but she grew up in a development, you know, nice sidewalks, all that stuff, you know, everyone waves and says, Hey, how you doing? Everyone's happy. Right. Right. Um, <laughs> so, and then you have like my cousins who grew up in East Cleveland. No, I'm just playing. Um, so, so anyway, uh, my point is, is that when you take into the emotional thing, you know, that's where you really talk about, Hey, where do I want to raise a family? And do I want to have stability and own my home? However, if you look at inflation adjusted prices, I'm not talking just the number, I'm talking about inflation adjusted. So if we're talking about a house bought in 1980 versus a house bought in 2020, the numbers are obviously going to be different, but are the numbers really that different when you're adjusting for inflation? And all the studies I've seen is that 
houses typically just keep up with inflation uh, when you look at it from that standpoint. So yeah, you can be in San Francisco and buy a house for like 600 grand, it pops up to 1.2 million, but you also have to realize that at some point it's gonna come back down again, uh, inflation adjusted. So I know that was a really long ramble, but you just gotta look at the time frame. No, that was, that was great, that was great. And then, you know, let me ask this. Um, there's also the big debate of whether or not one should invest uh, first or pay their debt off first. What is, what's your take on that? Yeah, so if you're going uh, straight defensive again, I think that you should pay off your debt first. However, being a numbers guy and just looking at this from a common sense mathematical standpoint, you just have to look at where you're getting your greatest rate of return, okay? So say, for example, you know, Ryan or Mo, you have student loans at 5% interest rate, right? It's fixed at 5%. And you're like, man, I got this cash in the bank right now. I can pay off these loans right now, or I can invest this money right now. Which one should I do? Well, if you know that your loans are 5%, if you pay off those loans, you are guaranteeing yourself a risk-free rate of return of 5%, because that's what the loan is at. That's your return on investment, basically. And you wipe out that debt. However, if I came up to you and said, hey, Ryan, I got this investment, you're going to make 15% guaranteed, right? Um, obviously, you can't guarantee returns, but just for the sake of this argument, hey, you can make 15% on this return, you know, where would you invest? Obviously, where you can make 15% because um, you're making more than the 5% that you could paying off your student loans. That's the way you got to look at it. It's perfect. Perfect. I would ask the question because you're well versed in finance obviously why are so many people financially uninformed or are why, why do we as americans have a have a blind spot when it comes to finances yeah that's another i know that's not repetitive but these are all great questions guys i can tell you guys prepared um which is great <laughs> um so i think that americans um and when i say americans i'm american i was born here but i also have an Eastern European perspective and like a European perspective on how people consume. So in the United States, Americans can only think, and I'm, I know this is a very broad blanket, I don't literally mean this, but I'm using it for an example to answer your question. They can only think in monthly payments. Oh, can I fit that car payment in my monthly budget? Can I fit that mortgage in my monthly budget? Can I fit these clothes in my monthly budget? You know, layaway, payments, 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 payments. That's the only way they can process numbers. I think Americans have never been through a difficult time like Europeans have. Like look at like old Soviet Union, look at Eastern Europe, look at any other part of the world, Africa, wherever, it doesn't matter. I feel like Americans have had it so good for so long that they're always like, ah, it's always gonna be rosy and sunny. I'll just put it on layaway. I'll just make a payment on that. Um, as opposed to old school, like Eastern European mentality. Like I said, I have no debt and that's for a reason. Like I buy cars with cash from private parties. Yeah. That doesn't mathematically make sense, but at the end of the day, I was able to quit my job and work a YouTube channel because I have no debt. So I think to answer your question, I think it's a, a combination of uh, low resistance, so like uh, uh, being marketed to all the time, and then being able to buy something with one click on Amazon Prime to where you don't even feel the pain of that purchase. And next thing you know, you got a $1,000 credit card bill because you just you know used Amazon Prime and you're being marketed to nonstop on Instagram, you know, all that stuff. So, um, yeah, I think it's just marketing mixed with ease of purchase power or purchasing ability, excuse me. 
what are some of the financial tenants that you live by that you would give people regardless of their income level? Like I'm sure there are certain things that you just live by financially when it comes to, to, to spending money. Yep. That's another great question. I think the root of the problem is not being content. So just piggybacking off of what I just said, um, it's not necessarily financial advice, but it's not being content. Cause when you have the 2013 Benz, Oh man, that 2020 just came out with night vision and massage seats and you know, 300 more horsepower, you know what I'm saying? So, um, it's always being like that. Um, and I can say this, I'm Eastern European, bro. I see it all the time. So don't take this the wrong way. I see it with African-Americans. I see it with my people too. It's all about, oh man, I got the big wheels. I got the new Benz. I got this, I got that. It's a bunch of peacocking, right? Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a, it's an eggplant measuring contest. That's what I like to say. So uh, I don't know if your audience hates me right now. I couldn't care less, but I <laughs> oh, no, you're good, man. We don't really answer anybody. You can say what you want. <laughs> yeah. It's the truth, man. It's uh it's not being content with what you have. That always leads to the next purchase. I got to get the bigger house, got to get the nicer car, got to get the new Jordans, got to get this, got to get that. It never ends. So when you're content and confident as uh, who you are, uh, that's when that stuff stops, that compuls uh, compulsory spending. So you, you're obviously very well versed financially. You know a lot of what's going on in the financial world. Um, given where we are within the pandemic, how far down do you anticipate the market will go? Like, in other words, where's the bottom? Where's the floor? And I know you don't have a crystal ball, but, you know, based off of your experience and all the uh, education, financial education that you have, what would you anticipate the, the bottom being at? Yeah, so I'm not going to give a specific number, but I've seen a lot of people say like, uh, you know, Dow 17,000, Dow 18,000, which we pretty much reached. Um, I think what people are saying right now is that we're in a dead cat bounce. So if you saw the market, it goes up, 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 and then the dead cat falls, then it bounces and it goes back down again. That's where a lot of people think we're at. Uh, to be honest, you know, the Fed just keeps printing money, which is obviously stimulating, you know, uh, asset prices such as real estate, equities, you know, stocks, things like that. But I think if I had to answer that question truthfully, it all depends on how long, you know, this quarantine lasts and how long the virus lasts. Um, because you have this shutdown affecting so many businesses, it's just going to trickle up. So for, here's a perfect example. Say, for example, I'm a waiter or a server at Applebee's. You're the franchisee who owns the Applebee's and Mo is the landlord that owns the uh, actual real estate, right? Well, when I stop working, the food gets stopped serving. The landlord, excuse me, the franchisee feels that he can't pay the landlord, landlord can't pay the mortgage servicer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just like a trickle up effect. So, so why not just pause all payments for a month? Yeah, they've discussed that. And I think they're doing that with certain things. I know some mortgages have been, uh, been granted uh, pauses. I know some commercial mortgages have like a 90 day pause going on right now. Um, I think that as long as that outlasts the virus, um, then we're okay. Now, if that stops, say, for example, you know, rent is due April 1st or May 1st or whenever, you know, this gets released and, you know, you have to pay rent, period. Otherwise, you're getting evicted. Otherwise, the landlord is getting foreclosed on. I think that is going to uh, be the biggest uh, bubble, if you will. So to answer the question, why don't they pause it? I mean, I think they're doing that right now, but if the quarantine outlasts that pause, that's when we're going to see trouble. Yeah. It's a crazy time that we're living in right now, man. Yeah. Um, let me ask you this. Uh, you know, in terms of, we know that everyone has their own financial pillars that they live by. 
um, regardless of wherever they are. But how does Marco structure his finances? We get that you live debt free, which, you know, thank God I'm, I have that ability as well um, outside of my mortgage, right? And I bought, I bought my car cash, so I live by the same philosophies as, as you do. But what are, um, what are, like, how do people set up the same type of structure that Marco and his family lives by in terms of finances? Yeah, so the backbone of our planning, um, I'm not one of these people that like, I have a budget, just a general budget, but I'm not one of these people that just micromanages every single transaction. I think life is too short for that. Um, but there's no, there's no right or wrong answer to that. But I think the structure of paying yourself first, meaning that if you get $1,000 a week and you know that's your paycheck, well, 10% of that should at least be coming back to you first. And the way I break that down is with a Capital One savings account. And I basically have a vacation fund, a house fund, uh, emergency fund, um, I'm trying to think, car fund, and I think one more that I can't think of right now. And no matter how much money I make, a percentage goes to those four or five buckets. And if we want to go take a vacation, okay, we got a couple grand in the vacation fund, let's do it. If we have a couple hundred bucks in the vacation fund, then we probably wait. You know, and that's, that's kind of like self-built in discipline almost without even trying. Now, isn't your other fund something where you can, uh, if you want to do a big lump sum investment, don't you carry yes, a fund like that? You're right. You're right. The fifth one, you're hundred percent right. Thank you. You know me better than I do. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, man, the, I'm a fan. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. The fifth one is my retirement slash investing account. You're right. That's like the war chest, if you will. Perfect. And so I kind of do something similar as well. The first 10% that I, when I get paid goes to God, my tithes and offer, offerings, second 10% I pay myself. Third 10% goes to an investment account. Um, and then what's the fourth one? Now you got me forgetting my fourth <laughs> one. <laughs> but no, we'll set it up for like a vacation or something like that too. But um, I think people need to understand, they need to look at their, their money in terms of percentages versus just saying, hey, I'm going to put $100 here, $100 here, $100 here. If you break it out percentage-wise, you'll always be okay. 100%. And even if you're, I get the question all the time, hey, I'm a realtor. I'm, I don't know what my next commission is going to be. I'm a salesperson. I don't know what my next commission is going to be. All you got to do is set a percentage. So whether you make $100 on a sale or a million dollars on a sale, you know exactly how much that money is going into that bucket. Marco, what would be your advice to, to an American right now who inherits a piece of land? Ooh, that's a good question. So I worked in commercial real estate for about three years on the development side. And the phrase that everyone that works in commercial real estate or just real estate in general is what is the best and highest use of this land? So if you have a, if, if you have one acre in New York city, that's worth a bajillion dollars, right? If you have one acre in the middle of Kansas, it's probably not worth as much. So it just depends on what the best and highest use is of that land. So if you want to use the example I just gave, if you have, you know, quarter acre in New York, well, it may make sense to build some apartments there, right? That's the best and highest use or maybe some retail. If you have a, an acre in Kansas, maybe start a Christmas tree farm. I don't know. You know, it just depends on, it just depends on where it's at. So the highest and best use of the land is what you got to figure out. Okay. So Marco, you are huge on YouTube. You've got what? 330 something thousand followers. Uh, what's the secret sauce, man? How did you get to, to blow up? Obviously your content is, is phenomenal. It's dope. And, and you know what you're talking about, but, What's the secret sauce in, in getting a YouTube channel up and running and, and blowing up? 
Yeah. Uh, so in the theme of your podcast, I think of, you know, in terms of giving people hope and that, you know, uh, motivation, if you will, uh, like I said, at the beginning of the interview, man, I'm just a regular guy that just kept at it. Um, so this was kind of like a side hustle. So the secret sauce, I know this, <laughs> this isn't like earth shattering, but it's kind of like that phrase that says, Oh, it took me 10, 15 years to become an overnight success. Right? So, uh, it took me about a year and a half of posting consistently for kind of like the algorithm to respect you and say, okay, this dude is taking this for real. He's not just, you know, posting once every couple months or a couple weeks or whatever. Uh, so the first thing is post consistently if you're going to do something and just take it seriously, treat it as a business for at least a year. The second is the video that really blew up my channel was at my car dealership video. And that has about, I think like six or 7 million views. Um, however, I already had a catalog of good information before that video. So if I was like a one hit wonder, I wouldn't have nearly the amount of subscribers I have because someone would see that viral video and they'd be like, oh, this guy has no other good videos. You know, I'm not subscribing to him, right? So I already put out the content um, and then that video went viral because it was a subject that affects a lot of people. So the video I'm talking about, if your audience doesn't know, is how car dealerships rip you off, you know, in parentheses, the truth, right? Everyone wants to know the truth. So little bit of, um, I don't want to say clickbait because it was true, um, but also the thumbnail was good. But I think the key to that video succeeding and going viral is because everyone feels like they're getting ripped off at the dealership and everyone can relate. So the way I, I uh, the analogy I make is it's like Dave Chappelle is funny to everyone because his jokes relate to a lot of people, right? So when he says like, um, he's like, what's in your cart? Oh, these are chicken wings or this purple stuff. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, right. that's funny because everyone relates to it, right? Um, so my point is, is these comedians that tell good jokes, a lot of people laugh because they can all relate. So when That's I talk, right. when you create a video, make it relatable. So it was a really big subject that was relatable to a lot of people. And that's why everyone quote unquote laughed at the joke or AKA watched the video, um, because it was relatable. And how, how long did it take you to figure out, okay, I need to get lighting. I need to have this type of microphone. I need to have this type of camera. Uh, you know, obviously I don't, I don't remember seeing your very first video, but I mean, how, how did you come to learn all the different things you have to do? This is Mo and I's my first foray into YouTube, right? So we're just like you, we're going to continue to plug away and, and pump out content and hopefully, um, folks are, are liking what we're putting. And by the way, guys, if you're watching this video, make sure you do smash the like button, right? Um, we certainly appreciate it and subscribe <laughs> to the channel. Yeah, for real. So, um, but like, what, what are some of the things that you had to learn in terms of like lighting and, and microphones and all that fun stuff? Man, so I'm just like you guys, man. I was, I'm a one-man show. Uh, obviously, you guys are two men, but I'm saying I'm a one-man show. You know, I'm assuming you guys don't have editors, producers, you know, professional lighting, all that stuff. So I just learned it all on YouTube, man. I just, whatever I was trying to figure out, I just YouTubed it or I Googled it and I just figured it out. So from lighting to microphones to editing on Premiere Pro and uh, thumbnails on Photoshop, I just Googled it and just figured it out. So um, you can learn a lot on YouTube, man. It's all free. That's the beauty of it. It is for real. YouTube University. That's right. <laughs> what do you think is the, well, hold on, let me rephrase it. In regards to the financial world, uh, Marco, what's your long-term vision as far as both whiteboard finance and the impact that you want to make on the financial world? Yeah. So I think about this a lot, you know, it's like, do I want to become kind of like just a, a figure like of my own uh, media company, like kind of like Dave Ramsey and Dave Ramsey solutions, if you will. Uh, do I want to create like a financial literacy course? You know, do I want to create like 
um, you know, a review site for different investment platforms, things like that. There's so many different routes that you can go to help people. Um, so to be quite honest, I think about this all the time. So right now my main priority is just still putting out good content on YouTube to build the audience, to build the community. Um, but ultimately I think I do want to go down the road of, uh, potentially blogging and just creating kind of like a, uh, uh, unbiased, objective, you know, unpaid, uninfluenced website that just gives people like the down and dirty of reviewing different platforms. So like Robinhood, Vanguard, Charles Schwab, you know, the pros and cons. Um, that way people can make their own informed decisions from someone who they like, know, and trust that's not trying to sell them something. Now, do you have a course that you are working on or that's already out right now? Yeah, so I actually have a waiting list. I'm glad you asked. And I know this is very self-promotional, but- No, that's what we're about, man. We want to promote it. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, so it's on how to start a YouTube channel. So I truly feel that um, once you break through that initial barrier of not making much money on YouTube or not having a big influence, um, kind of like in the infancy stages of your channel or your business, I think that YouTube is one of the best business models out there in terms of getting your word out and making money. So whether it's you working a full-time job like I did and then just doing this on nights and weekends or doing it full-time like I do it now, uh, I actually have a course that's going to be essentially like a YouTube university masterclass, like talking about everything I know and everything I've learned and how to actually grow your channel um, to at least the first thousand subscribers and beyond. Um, so I do have a waiting list for that course. Well, we hope to get in that course as well. <laughs> I'll give you guys a discount. <laughs> Let's appreciate it. Appreciate it. Um, well, it's about time to, to land the plane. Mo, did you have, what did you want to say? Yeah, I, I was thinking the same thing. So uh, there's uh, it's a round table, Marco. Uh, it's you and there are five other seats at the table. Um, who are your five guests? Uh, the only caveat that we have for this is uh, it can't be Jesus is one of your guests. That's a, that's a great, 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 great question. And I hope you guys do this for every podcast you do. I think this is a great question. So off the top of my head, so I'm going to have to take this from just like a, like a adolescent Marco to maybe like a sports hero to an investing hero to like a, you know, mentor, if you will. Is your table. So, yeah. So from a, from a sports hero standpoint, you know, I definitely got to have, see, I want to say, man, this is tough because some people in their sports life is not who they are as a person. You know what I mean? Like as a good person. Right. Uh, so let's do this. How about from an investment standpoint? This is going to sound cliche, but I do want to have uh, Warren Buffett at the table just to learn from old wisdom. Uh, from new wisdom, I want to have uh, Jeff Gunlock. He's a bond billionaire, and he calls a lot of stuff like it is without holding back, and I do appreciate his candor and how candid he is. Um, the next person, it's got to be someone fun. So how about you guys are from uh, Dallas. Why not do Jerry Jones? <laughs> okay. That would be fun. That'd yeah. be very interesting. Yeah. Jerry Jones for the parting to spice it up a little bit. Um, the fourth one, if I do go back to that sports idol kind of a thing, um, I got to have, you know, God rest his soul, Kobe Bryant, if you're allowed to do people who have passed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Kobe was my favorite player, him and Allen Iverson when I was growing up. Um, and then finally, the fifth and final person, I'm trying to think of someone maybe who's a little bit more like wise, if you will. Uh, this sounds corny, but let's go with uh, Tony Robbins to keep me motivated. Love it. Love it. Um, real quickly, we want to give you the opportunity to, uh, you know, do some more self-promotion. How can our visionaries get a hold of you if they want to learn more about Marco or Whiteboard Finance? 
Yeah, thank you, Ryan. Uh, just very simply, if you just type in whiteboard, one word, finance uh, on YouTube, you'll find me. Uh, Twitter is whiteboardfin, F-I-N, and then Instagram is whiteboardfinance, all spelled out. Beautiful, beautiful. All right, so want to say big, big thank you for, for joining us on the podcast here in the lab. I've got one final question for you, okay? Okay. Uh, the podcast is all about mindset. It's all about your vision. Okay. So I want to give you this opportunity. So we've got a time clock here, our time machine. Okay. In case you didn't know, we're going to go back <laughs> five years. What advice would Marco be telling himself from five years ago? What advice would you give yourself from five years ago? Man. So outside of the obvious stuff, like back to the future where the guy finds the almanac and becomes, you know, a millionaire right. um, outside of just like buy Bitcoin, you know, buy Tesla stock, stuff like that. If, if you're talking about just from a wisdom perspective, um, if I can go back five years ago, so I'm 32 right now, I'd be 27 at the time. Uh, I would tell myself just to be, um, how do I say this more open to people's criticism. So sometimes as an entrepreneur, you feel like, you know, you know, it the best, you know, you know, everything, mm -hmm. not from a arrogant standpoint. Um, cause I'm a pretty humble dude, I think, but I, agree. I think you are. Thank you. But just from like a con constructive criticism standpoint. So when someone's saying like, Hey, you know, try and do this a little bit different. It's like, Oh no, I already know it. You know, I'm, I already, I've been doing it this way forever. I think just being a little bit more flexible, um, taking other people's advice, but at the same time, it's a double-edged sword because, you know, if you're coaching a team and you're listening to the fans in the stands, you know, you're going to be out of a job real quick. So being a little bit more flexible, but still believing in yourself. So I know that's corny, but other than that, buy Bitcoin, <laughs> buy Bitcoin, buy <laughs> <For> Tesla. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. Okay. Now let's, we're going to move the clock five years forward. Okay. So okay. you'll be about 37. Yep. What advice would the older version of Marco, what advice would he be giving himself today? Oh, that's a good question. So knock on wood, you know, God willing, you know, I'll have my first child by then, or maybe a couple by then. Um, you know, my wife, you know, she's been crushing it with full-time school, full-time nurse, full-time, you know, nurse practitioner, um, clinicals, you know, just working her butt off. Um, if I, if my 37 year old self would talk to my 30 32 year old self today, it would be uh, treat your friends and family um, as best as you can, because at the end of the day, whether we all become, you know, multi, multi zillionaires, or if we're broke tomorrow, um, friends and family and health is really all you have and time, of course. So yeah. don't stress out about the little things. And we're seeing that right now with COVID-19. That's right. That's right. So, well, Marco, I just want to say uh, a big thank you again for, for joining us here in the lab. It's been such a treat and a privilege to, to speak with you and learn so much from you and to all of our visionaries. Again, make sure you subscribe to the Vision Lab podcast here on YouTube. Check out, we're on every available uh, podcast platform out there from Apple Podcasts, uh, iTunes, uh, Google Podcasts, Spotify, everything. So make sure you guys are checking us out. If you did like this video, we certainly would appreciate you smashing that like button, subscribing to the channel, uh, would mean a lot to us. And so, um, Mo, let's land the plane. Ladies and Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, the voice you've been listening to is Marco Zlatic. My name is Ryan Mosley. He is Ryan Cuffey, and we will see you next week on another episode of the Vision Lab podcast. Blessings. All right. Thank you.